0: If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. slash weightloss.
2: Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon,
0: And me. William.
2: We have done a simultaneous fan moment haven't we because both you and I have um, slightly fallen in in love with both subject matter and indeed guest superstar this week haven't we?
0: Absolutely. I think both of us had, I I never, you went to Russia in your youth which I never did but I sat in places like Rome and my first trip round India with war and peace in those buses.
2: Yes, I know. I'm, and also, you know, the, the subject matter, particularly this week, has, you're quite right, thrown me back into just being sort of a, a slightly dippy student you know, sort of. <laughs> but the joy of reading about Tolstoy um, because I, honestly I didn't know as much and I didn't realize how much I'd be drawn into him and his life and also I sort of had many of the same feelings I felt when we were doing the Gandhi episode which is that there is a whole hinterland here which you need to kind of understand to understand the thinking and the, the transformation. Of a, of a great life.
0: And as we will find, of course, it links yes, don't blow very <laughs> closely. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Bags of hush. Bags of hush now. Anyway, we should introduce our, our superstar who we were um, completely uh, gaga over this week. Rosamond Bartlett is, well, the author of the great book that we're basing the podcast on today, Tolstoy, A Russian Life. But she's not just that, she's a translator, a translator of great esteem. She has done the latest and, dare I say, greatest translation of Anna Karenina for Oxford World Classics Edition. And she is very welcome on Empire. Hello. Hello. Very nice to be here.
0: We were very, very lucky to have Rosamund Butler to our Jaipur Literature Festival when uh, her Tolstoy biography first came out and she gave a barnstorming performance that I remember thinking was by far the greatest at the festival. And it was just oh, so exciting to have you. But how wonderful now to have you back. I hope you can remember it all. It's what, 10 years since you wrote that book?
3: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
0: I have to say that I read it when uh, you came to Jaipur and reading it again this week. Uh, it hasn't aged at all. It's if anything, it's become more But so many of the issues that you throw up are absolutely of the moment this weekend. It it was extraordinary reading it now.
2: You call it a a Russian life. And there is um, something so quintessential about the interweaving of of one man and the history of a country. Just just tell us why Tolstoy is so very totemic when it comes to looking at Russia and Russian history. Well,
3: he had a life that was very long for a start. So he lived during the reign of four Tsars. Uh, all of whom he he wrote to personally. Uh, he he felt himself there equal to him, and uh, he was by common consent Russia's greatest prose writer. So the two greatest novels that he wrote, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Uh, are by common sense these days, you know, two of the greatest novels in world literature.
0: We should say at this point, if there is any person listening to this podcast out there that has not yet read War and Peace or Allegrenner, they are known as the world's two greatest novels for very, very, very good reasons. And you need to go, as well as buying Rosamond's wonderful biography, you need to buy both those novels and read them. They're the greatest reading experiences certainly in my life. and And many other people I know share that feeling.
2: All right, Professor. Then will there be a detention? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded particularly finger waggy, if I may say. Sorry, Rosamond, you, you were saying. <laughs> so, on on that basis alone, uh, I'll take
3: Professor. He's, I'll take it. He's, he's, uh, he's one of the the greatest uh, Russians, but he, you know, he was much more than that because he actually spent longer than he was a professional novelist, being a thorn in the Russian imperial government's side, and he ended up at the end of his life being really the, la- the nation's moral leader and his influence carried on after 1917 and probably would still be very relevant today if Stalinism happened. Happened, so he's he's a, just a hugely important figure.
0: He's an alternative version in many ways of what Russia could easily have been. The revolution was not inevitable in the form it took. Certainly, was it? No,
3: uh, he he was someone who was regarded as an influential thinker um, on on a par with Marx. Um, I mean, that seems hard to imagine now, but that was the case in 1917. Lenin very famously wrote a an article. On the 80th anniversary uh, of Tolstoy's great life, when he was he was 80 years old, uh, Lev Tolstoy as a mirror of the Russian Revolution, and he had a lot of uh, time for Tolstoy because he was doing a lot of good work trying to you know undermine the government and, and uh, pull it down. But he didn't agree with the nonviolent approach that that Tolstoy championed, and Tolstoy was a vegetarian. So the the thing with the uh, situation in the 1920s, of course, is that Lenin had decreed that every word by Tolstoy should be published. And so Stalin was obliged to start publishing the 90 volume collected. <laughs> works mm. and uh, you know maybe this is not the time to go into it but but the the whole history of that edition is, is very uh, interesting and his religious writings were only printed in a very small print rhyme once to, to cut a yeah. long story well short. I mean
2: we're, we're going to we're going to start digging into the life and and times of the man himself but William will burst out of his seat if we don't like the thing that I made him <laughs> do, 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 do. but you said sort of vegetarianism and non-violence that sounds like another fellow we know quite well on this podcast and there is a connection a direct connection between Tolstoy and Gandhi, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh,
3: Tolstoy's magnum opus in terms of his spiritual writings was a work called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And by the time that he wrote it, he had an en- incredibly sophisticated operation disseminating his writings abroad because he was censored. He was a Samizdat author. He was like a sort of Soviet dissident. And they were all published abroad and then smuggled back into Russia. But so sophisticated was this operation that there were several translations that reached far corners of the world, including South Africa, where there was a young lawyer called Mohandas Gandhi, who read it and was absolutely struck dumb by it. And it changed his life and his whole approach to uh, solving the, uh, the, the problems in India.
0: I open my book, The Anarchy, with Tolstoy's letter to Gandhi, uh, when he talks about the East India Company, a company that enslaved 5 million people, or was it 50 million people, whatever the figure was. Yes, uh, uh, very important.
2: Yeah, yeah very yeah. important. And here's another tidbit, because we like tidbits, and then we really are going to get dug in. But Gandhi was so taken by Tolstoy, and Tolstoy's writing, that the farm, you know, this ashram that he creates in South Africa, they call it Tolstoy Farm. So, I mean, you know, it's just embedded there.
0: And one other thing before we dive into his life and, and start...
2: <laughs> promise it It's the longest <laughs> preamble in history.
0: Go All on. One, <laughs> lastly, is the fact that Tolstoy is probably the greatest writer on the Russian Empire and on Russian imperialism, on the expansion of Russia southward.
3: I don't think that he was necessarily writing about it, but he but he, he was. I mean, his intentions were, were sort of often other, but he certainly uh, wrote very, very much in detail about his time in the army.
0: And Haji Murat at the end, which is my, one of my favourite novellas of all time. Yeah.
2: Well, let's not bust that balloon because we're going to come to it. Can we start with um, the origin story, uh, as we always like to, to do on this podcast? Where was he born? How was he made? Uh, what is Tolstoy at the beginning?
3: So Lev Nikolaevich Tolstoy was born in 1828 in the reign of Nicholas I, three years after the Decembrist uprising, which would later play a role in his own life and career. And he was born deep in the Russian countryside south uh, of Moscow near the city of Tula which was a famous place for making uh, arms, as it it happens. Uh, There was incredible ironworks there where they produced guns. And he was born into the Russian gentry. Uh, So he was already born Count Tolstoy. And the Russian uh, for count is, is Graf. And this is a title that was imported by Peter the Great in the 18th century when he was modernizing Russia. And he imported these... European title, so Graf is is a German word. German title, that. exactly. That's uh, exactly that uh, Graf. Uh. Uh, same in Russian and and Baron. So he wasn't the the sort of highest echelon of the Russian aristocracy. He wasn't a, a prince or a, or a grand duke or anything like that. But he was still very much of the high ranks of the nobility, and he came from a distinguished uh, lineage.
0: We've come across one of his ancestors in our episode on Peter the Great.
3: Yes, you've just preempted me. Yes, so that's that's Pyotr Andreevich, who who was very high-ranking with Peter the Great, yes, and you know served in Europe and, and was one of the first people in Russia to shave his beard and wear Western dress and then was you know dispatched to, to get back the errant heir to the throne. Who
0: was then horribly tortured and murdered.
3: Absolutely. And, and then he was someone who had a lot of ambition and he was sort of jockeying for power and was angling for Peter's daughter to become empress after Peter's death and was then arrested by Menshikov and... Uh, Uh, exiled uh, to Solovki, the the Solovetsky islands, which later had a notorious concentration camp.
2: Mm. So let's talk about Artolstein. Would we have liked him? Was he a a good bloke as a young man? Uh, He would
3: have been immensely attractive, but very difficult. Uh, He had great propensity for rubbing people up the wrong way all the way through his life, uh, except probably at the end when he was sort of consistently going on about his spiritual ideas. But as a young man, uh, he became an orphan at the age of seven. His mother died before he was two. His father died seven. And so the Tolstoy children were packed off to Kazan to be brought up by their aunt and uncle and that meant that yes he didn't really have maybe that sort of paternal discipline that might have instilled him in him some sort of uh ideas about how to sort of live because the minute he became adult he started sort of gambling wildly. Yeah, he goes
0: on the lash in, in Kazan, doesn't he? Yeah, He was very, very <laughs> feckless.
3: Uh, so there's a sort of, I, I don't I don't know that we, he was incredibly self-conscious too because he didn't feel he was as good looking as some of the other. Yeah, others we labels. have to
0: quickly get this for Anita. She's always very keen to get a visual yes. portrait of our heroes. Do you know what, somebody,
2: somebody on Twitter said, uh, we, what we learn from um, listening to Empire is that William's related to somebody in every episode in history and Anita's boy mad. Okay, so yes, I do, <laughs> I do like to know,
0: I didn't see that, do you? Yes, oh,
2: yes.
3: <laughs>
0: he was more of a looker in old age, wasn't he? he looked great with his beard and as a sort of fantastic old sage at the end. But he he's got a kind of rather sort of knobbly face as a young man.
3: Yes, and a rather sort of large nose. I mean, he looks he looks yeah. a little bit like a, a Russian peasant. I mean, that's another reason why he's such a sort of totem for for, for Russia. But he had this aristocratic bearing, and he is a supreme man of contradictions, Tolstoy. So he was sort of a you know, a bundle of opposites. And so that's why I think uh, he would have confounded a lot of his contemporaries because he didn't actually behave like the rest of the Russian nobility, you know, who were very, very conservative for the most part. He was always swimming against the current. Uh, He was an outsider from from an early age.
0: But to quote himself about his youth in Kazan, crude, dissolute living in the service of ambition, vanity, and above all lust. Tell us about that.
3: Well, I think so. <laughs> so he he lost his virginity uh, when he was a teenager in Kazan. I think when he was fourteen, and happened to start his literary career by. Writing the first diary entry in the <laughs> venereal diseases clinic, he got sent. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, is that he he dropped out of university. He he couldn't uh, he couldn't sustain uh, his interest. He didn't mm. like authority. That that is one of the really important things to note about Tolstoy. That in, you know no one was someone he really looked up to except Jesus at the
2: end of his life, and even then he sort of rather fashioned Jesus around his own. Ideal. So we know he liked sex, did not like authority as a young man. Where did the love of letters begin? I mean, did he grow up in a household that was steeped in learning? And tell us about the the blind storyteller. I was really very taken by that. The family's blind storyteller.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Russian uh, the Russian aristocracy had this wonderful sort of you know literary atmosphere. So the the writers you know meant a great deal. And yeah, Tolstoy grew up in this ancestral home in Yasnaya Polyana. Uh, Clear glade and in, in the middle of the countryside, this lovely classical mansion, and there was a great library there. And both of his parents had been uh, extremely well read, so
2: he sort of absorbed all that. Okay, but learned. I mean, he he is learned from the start, and he has a he has a love of words and fashioning words, and even the diary entries sort of show that this is a man who who can write. Even sort of at the earliest points, he can write. Yeah. Well, he
3: he begins very early on a, a lifelong journey to submit his own consciousness to sort of psychological analysis. In a way, his whole life becomes a kind of literary project. And really, everything that's going on with all his novels, he's examining himself, which is why I was very understanding of the recent uh, version of Uncle Vanya, in which Andrew Scott played all the characters because of course you know there, there, there is some sort of logic to that Brilliant. Um, particularly with with Tolstoy. So as a result of um this I you mean know, this supreme intelligence he's wanting to articulate Consciousness and process, and so inevitably, yes, he starts developing his literary skills. And Rousseau, in particular, I think, is a very important figure there.
0: And the blind storyteller, we can't. Oh, so the blind listen.
3: storyteller, yes, absolutely. So, when he was a little boy, uh, he would um, sometimes be in the bedroom when his grandmother was getting undressed, and she was able to get undressed in front of the the serf who would tell her fairy tales at night because he was blind and there was a whole tradition for noble families to employ uh, blind storytellers well
0: enough in India too the Mughals used to go to bed with storytellers reading stories to them uh, at epics through a screen
3: yes and and in you know the, in Ukraine too there was this great tradition of kobzars these bards who who would who would you know be blind as well so tolstoy was sort of absolutely spellbound by by being able to to listen to these stories um and of course that instilled in him a great love for russian culture and this is a, in a in an era before folklore began to be really appreciated
0: there's a lovely letter you quote when he leaves How do I pronounce it? Yasnaya Polyana? Yasna Polyana. Yasna Polyana. He leaves his estate and he goes to St. Petersburg. And the young Tolstoy is this sort of hopeless, gambler, dissolute. And I just, this is your translation, I presume, of of, of a letter, but I love it. it. I imagine you're already saying, he writes to his brother Sergei, that I'm the most empty-headed fellow, Uh, and you'll be telling the truth. God knows what I've gone and done. I set off for no reason to Petersburg, did nothing worthwhile there, just spent a heap of money and got into debt. It's stupid, unbelievably stupid. You won't believe how much it's tormenting me. The main thing are the debts, which I have to pay as soon as possible, because if I don't pay them soon, I'll lose my reputation on top of the money. Is that very much... Teenage Tolstoy. Well,
3: that that is. He he had he had no idea what to do with himself. He had this incredible intellectual energy, uh, but he had no idea how to channel it. So at one point he was thinking he was going to you know join up and go to the army. Then he wanted to be a diplomat, and then he wanted to go back and hear the gypsies sing and he was gambling like all great russians and uh, he he found himself having you know to get his steward to flog off uh, one of his estates and you know because <laughs> uh, to pay his debts and in fact you know eventually in fact it was actually during the crimean war he ended up
2: selling his ancestral home well let look i mean let's we'll get to we'll get to the war in a minute because you know selling off one estate is not enough for the debts yeah. that he's accrued he does end up you know eventually bouncing himself into the army in 1851. I mean, is that largely due to the you know the debts that he'd accrued, that in the army he might be able to pay them off or escape. I don't know, we, we've read so many things um, before on or for this podcast where people have escaped into the army to escape creditors, largely because they don't think they'll follow them to the front. Um, but, but is this for money or just to have a little bit of headspace while you sort yourself out?
3: No, it was a completely random thing. Uh, and I think it's very illustrative of, of the way in which Tolstoy lived without really very much purpose. So his elder brother... Um, and all the brothers worshipped Nikolai the Eldest. Uh, he'd gone off and done his duty to serve in the army, become an officer and was serving down in the Caucasus, and he came back to to visit Tolstoy one, one day, and you know, Tolstoy had nothing better to do, and he hadn't made any plans at all. He just on a whim decided that he was just going to go off with him, and that was just another adventure. So he went off without thinking he was going to, to join up, in fact. Uh, he just went to... Uh, enjoy himself which which he did and that's where of course he started writing fiction but also decided that he would serve as well and you know there was no obligation for the nobility to serve but there was this feeling of honor and he wanted wanted glory at that point he he did he did have a lot of vanity
0: 1854 he ends up in the caucasus tell us about him arriving in chechnya
3: so he's in an incredibly beautiful part of the world. So for the for the Russian soldiers and officers who left Moscow and Petersburg, which is largely flat, suddenly they were in this sort of wild west of Russia. And, you know, Russia had been fighting this colonial war uh, ever since Catherine the Great had annexed Georgia. And there were all these... Uh, tribes in the mountains who were uh, doing their best to to stop that happening, and uh, Tolstoy arrived in the Caucasus at a rather sort of late point because, of course, the Russian army had been confronted when they when they first arrived in the Caucasus. They, they sort of couldn't really execute traditional battle plans uh, because they weren't fighting on the flat and they were fighting guerrillas and uh, so uh, Count Mikhail Varantsov who was the leader then, then de- devised this policy of just raising the forests to expose these fighters
0: We're going to take a break soon but just before we do, tell us about the real Haji Murat who is the inspiration for one of his last but arguably his greatest novella.
3: Well he was one of the The Chechen rebel leaders uh, who falls out with another leader, Imam Shamil, and sort of goes over to the other side, as it were. He goes over to the Russians, um, and Shamil has... Uh, captured Hachimurod's family, and so he's sort of wanting to get revenge. And in the end, he meets a rather dastardly end because the the, the Russians they just betray him, don't they? And uh, he he's murdered. It's
0: a great, great piece of writing.
3: It's an incredible piece of writing, which many people regard as Tolstoy's greatest short story. Some of his greatest writing in general. Some people would say it was the greatest short story ever written.
0: I would I would go with that. Yep.
3: And you know what 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 is important. Because is that Tolstoy started it. The whole idea came from his earliest experiences with the army down in the Caucasus, but he was still tinkering with this story long after he'd abjured the writing of fiction. Uh, and, you know, he he only ever wrote fiction in the 1880s and 90s and onwards to preach a moral idea. And here he was writing, you know, a piece of great, great literature. And, of course, you know, but his, his later ideas impinge on it because he comes down very heavily on the idea of Russian Imperialism and the whole idea of government.
0: You write at the at the beginning of your great biography, Rosamond, that today the Chechens admire Tolstoy for making friends with them during his time in the Caucasus, and that this was highly unusual for Russian officers who tended to treat the natives with contempt. Do you tell us about that?
3: Yes, uh, I think that's something actually quite important that really distinguishes Tolstoy from other writers. So, someone like uh, Lermontov had gone down to the Caucasus and. Died in a duel down there
0: in the place where Tolstoy was living. In the same absolutely, time, absolutely
3: yes. And there was yeah this sort of um, lack of interest, a complete absence of interest in in the locals. And what distinguishes Tolstoy, who is a realist writer, from Leibnitzoff, who was a sort of you know great romantic writer, is that Tolstoy actually sort of lives amongst them. And being the con- contrary person that he is, he sympathizes and identifies with the Cossacks because you know their 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 freedom lovers and they're very independent and the women have a, have a role uh, as well and so he, he writes with such sympathy that of course the Chechens today uh, re- revere him for his great service to them.
2: Well it's a good point to take a break Join us after the break where we find out more about the developing psyche and career of Tolstoy Ah <sighs>
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: Welcome back. So just before the break, we were talking about um, Haji Murad, you know, in which Tolstoy is Showing himself to be something of a, a unique thinker, doing something that people don't do at that time, which is sympathizing with the enemy. You know, f- opening his eyes to the fact that things are not binary, black and white, and the, you know, the imperial Russia is not always right.
0: Impossible, for example, to imagine a British author in East India Company, India at the same time, projecting himself into the into Tipu Sultans' uh, mind or something.
2: That's a ver- very interesting point, yeah. Um, 1853 then. Um, so Torso is getting bored now with regimental life, it seems. And he's getting... Sort of slightly sick of himself. Uh, what what happens? You know what happens at, at this point? Is it is it the siege of uh, Silistria which which changes his worldview again?
3: I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know his 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 brother Nikolai, whom he'd gone to join, had resigned his commission.
0: We should say this is in modern Romania on the Danube, but we're now moving.
3: We're just about to move there. So so Tolstoy actually. Uh, tries to to resign himself, uh, it should be said, but he can't because of the new hostilities that have broken out between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, and yes, in the, the land of, of modern Romania, largely. And so he is transferred to active duty there. And this is the beginnings of what will, of course, be the Crimean War. And in fact, by the time he eventually arrives down in what is current day Romania, in Silistria, uh, the theatre of war has moved to the Crimea, and so he gets transferred again.
0: Before we go, can I just read, there's a there's a wonderful uh, passage in his diary. No, it's a letter to his aunt, and he writes, beautiful description, the, the Danube, its islands and its banks, some occupied by us, others by the Turks, so that you could see the town, the fortress, and the little forts of Silistria, as though through the palm of your hand. You could hear the cannon fire and rifle shots, which continued night and day, and with a field glass you could make out the Turkish soldiers. It's true, it's a funny sort of pleasure to see people killing each other, and yet every morning and evening I would get up on my cart and spend hours of the time watching, and I wasn't the only one. That's a very tall story, sort of contradiction, isn't it? Yeah,
3: so, you know, he, he even, even at the end of his life, he was totally fascinated by the whole idea of warfare and, and battle. It, it never ceased to uh, to interest him as a as a process, but um, he was longing t- to have uh, some sort of active duty. So that's what happens when he finally arrives in Sebastopol.
0: He also examines his own bravery or cowardice. He says it wasn't at all frightening as might supposed, watching it, although it was close by. The period that precedes an engagement is the most unpleasant. It's the only period when you have the time to be afraid, and fear is one of the most unpleasant feelings. Towards morning, the nearer the moment came the more this feeling diminished. And towards three o'clock, we were all waiting to see the shower of rockets let off as the signal for attack. And I was in such good humour that I'd been very upset <laughs> if someone had come along and me this assault wouldn't take place.
2: Mm. You were taking us to Sevastopol, which you know we've, we've spoken about in, in two podcasts uh, with, with Orlando viges He is newly promoted when he arrives at Sevastopol. So tell us what he's doing there. What is he expecting to see and what does he end up seeing?
3: Well, yes, he's sort of in pursuit of this sort of military honours, and he's still thinking he might get the Saint George Cross, which has alluded in before. But now, yes, he's serving in the in the artillery, and he arrives in Sebastopol in November uh, of eighteen fifty four, and and it's been under siege since since September, and he's not actually serving uh, actively himself until the following year. So he's there at the end as as an observer, really. Um, So he, he does spend quite a lot of time, both in... Uh, in Silistria and in Sebastopol, just twiddling his thumbs and and playing cards and and gambling. Playing the piano more. too. Playing the piano. That's right. Yes. He finds a piano, doesn't he? Uh, and it's really only in the the the, the early months of the, of 1855 that he gets transferred to active duty. But he's already been wanting to uh, put into words some of the things he's been seeing. And he's really mostly uh, shocked, really, by what he perceives as a completely different situation amongst the Allied forces. So he goes to talk to some of the prisoners of war in Sebastopol and he sees that they feel um, they've got an incredible sense of dignity and pride in what their countries are doing, which really, really contrasts very sharply with the morale in the Russian army.
2: Well, I mean, he he sort of writes about, I mean, he's he's there in time to see what is carnage uh, in the hand-to-hand combat at at the Battle of Inkerman, And this is what he writes in his diary. Uh, It's uh, worth, worth hearing. It was a treacherous, revolting business, he wrote about this defeat on the 14th of November. The enemy put forward 6,000 riflemen, only 6,000 against 30,000, and we retreated, having lost about 6,000 brave men. And we had to retreat because half our troops had no artillery owing to the roads being impassable. And God knows why. There were no rifle battalions. Terrible slaughter. It'll weigh heavy on the souls of many people. Lord, forgive them. The news of this action has produced a sensation. I've seen old men who wept aloud and young men who swore to kill Danenberg. Great is the moral strength of the Russian people. Many political truths will emerge and evolve in the present difficult days for Russia. The feeling of ardent patriotism that has arisen and issued forth from Russia's misfortunes will long leave traces on her.
3: So this this is what he'll put into his pieces of reportage because he plans um, to try and, and raise this um, sense of morale and to try and bring reform. He realizes the Russian army needs reform and he proposes the idea of producing a forces newspaper. But Nicholas the The first, of course, says no and just says, Oh, well, you can write for the official newspaper, which, of course, is (laughs) no good at all because they've always had the right to do that. So, this is what then drives Tolstoy to start writing, reading fiction. And, of course, Nicholas I dies in February 1855. And this is a hugely important date in the whole of Russian 19th century history because he's ruled Russia with an iron fist for um, over 25 years. And inevitably, it's a kind of thaw. And so Tolstoy thinks suddenly, right, I can sort of put some of my ideas about reform into action, and he thinks he can start writing. So he writes his first piece of uh, reportage from Sebastopol in December, based on what you've just been uh, reading, Anita. And it's a very patriotic Peace still. But what's so incredible about it is, of course, it's it's published a few months later in this new climate where the censorship is lifted. And Russian readers have never had a sense of what warfare, modern warfare is like. And of course, it's still going on at, at this stage. So you get this incredible immediacy, if I could just read to you one little paragraph. Uh, it's very, very vivid. It's like sort of watching a film that the whistle close at hand of a shell or a cannonball just at the very moment you start to climb the hill gives you a nasty sensation. Suddenly you realize in an entirely new way the true significance of those sounds of gunfire you heard from the town. Some quiet, happy memory suddenly flickers to life in your brain. You start thinking more about yourself and less about what you observe around you and are suddenly gripped by an unpleasant sense of indecision.
0: So Tolstoy, (laughs) it's a classic case. But he's actually in great danger, isn't he? He's actually in in, in one of the the bastions which is being most shelled by the Allies. And just to give uh, 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 the figures here, he's in Sebastopol, one of 35,000 Russian defenders. 13,000 of those do not return home. Are killed in Sebastopol.
3: That's right. Um, so that little passage I just read was was based on his observations. But but of course, you know, the the next. Uh, installment of his Sebastopol is Sebastopol in, in May is written on um, the basis of his actual experience uh, on the fourth bastion, which was the most southern point and closest to the Allies. And of course, it was extremely dangerous.
0: Next to the French, who've got the most up-to-date artillery uh, and, and uh, absolute cutting-edge weaponry.
3: Exactly. And Tolstoy writes this a very, very different account of his experiences. And having had the first Sebastopol in December piece published and translated into French at the express demand of Alexander II, and it's made him a celebrity in Russia. He now writes a piece that is completely massacred by the censor because he's already becoming, coming out with pacifist uh, views. And it's uh, very, very chastening for him to, to realize and to realize that none of his ideas for reforming the army, uh, which, of course, is an army that is uh, it's made up of, of serf soldiers who are conscripted to fight for 25 years, which is their life, and they're paid a pittance. And Tolstoy realizes that the, the officers are really no more enlightened uh, in, in terms of, of leadership. And with, with Crimea being so far away, he realizes that you know, serfdom is, is really holding Russia up. There is, there is a very primitive communication system, and Russia is destined to, to lose the war.
2: Yeah, I mean, he 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 may have had uh, some of his work sort of massacred, but the stuff that does you know get translated into French gets into the hands of the tsarina is said to make her weep. I mean, he is a powerful writer who has a voice now that people are listening to.
3: Yes, well, he's he's become a, a celebrity at this point, and his literary powers of bringing people into the moment uh, are completely unparalleled, and his ability also to sort of enter into the the thoughts and feelings of other people, wh- whether it's a, a dying soldier, of course, that's enough to bring the Tsarina to tears. Yeah.
2: Can we talk a little bit um, uh, about, you know, you develop this idea of he sees the serfs as suffering. He sees, you know, it's kind of that led by donkeys mentality. I mean, how does this affect sort of the post-war period of his life. Does he have an idea, a route to making the serf's life better? Is he now more critical of imperial Russia in, in a way that is dangerous to imperial Russia?
3: Yeah, I think the Crimean War is a, is a sort of watershed in Tolstoy's life, and it changes him irrevocably. And he comes back to St. Petersburg. It makes him uh, want to get out of the army as soon as he can, uh, which he does, and he arrives in St. Petersburg. And of course, there's a, a side to him which wants to go carousing with the gypsy singers again and, and gamble again. But he's also he didn't
0: he didn't exactly stop carousing in, in, even in Sebastopol. There's there's a few Ukrainian women on the way. That's absolutely
3: right. He did. So he he hasn't given up his uh, his his habits yet. But he's also, of course. Um, Arriving as a celebrated writer now and Tegenev is there, his elder contemporary. They
0: have a rather troubled relationship, don't they? And they have a very troubled
3: relationship because Tolstoy is is eminently not clubbable. You know, he doesn't want to fit (laughs) in and uh, he will forever have a very fractious relationship with, with Tegenev. And he, you know, he, uh, he's already acquainted with him and goes to stay in his apartment
0: Tegenev's a generation older
3: he's 10 years older he's 10 years older and Tegenev is too urbane he's too western you know for, for Tolstoy
0: living in Paris too much
3: he, he uh, is uh, and uh. he's too much of an artist already uh, this will come out much much more uh strongly mm. later on but already uh, Tol- Tolstoy is realizing that uh, they are chalk and cheese
0: but his sketches from Huntsman's album which is my favorite tegeev uh, is one of the early important influences on Tolstoy, isn't it? He's, he's read it as a boy and loves it.
3: Absolutely. This is um, a selection of stories written in 1852, just a few years earlier. And Togenev is extraordinary in Actually, putting peasants into his fiction. He's the first Russian writer to treat the peasants as human beings and to give them a dignity. And that is uh, a milestone in Russian letters because serfdom has been this sort of great white elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. And now it's very much to the fore. And of course, with the accession of Alexander II and with the Crimean War being such a fiasco for Russia. Alexander realises that he's got to introduce reforms. And of course, the one great um, iniquity, the great injustice that's been holding Russia up is serfdom. And so that is the the sort of the most important day, 1861.
2: I mean, talking about one difficult relationship between him and and Turgenev, but let's talk about the other one. Can we talk about, can we talk about Sonia now. I mean, that is a relationship which I'm utterly fascinated with. His his wife, who he meets, 1862, uh, they sort of get engaged after about a week. She's 16 years younger than him. And he presents her almost immediately after they're married with uh, a diary of all of his Sexual history, which is you know colourful to say the Dari- least.
0: Diary contains other things as well, but the sexual history. Yeah, you know, in there, but yeah.
2: just tell us about that relationship a little bit more, and why did it happen, and what was she like? <laughs> well, I think I think
3: today people would probably say that Tolstoy was somewhere on the spectrum when <laughs> I mean, he had some very <laughs> strange ways of uh, of behaving. Uh, so. Just to go back to the year in which he gets married then 1862, this is the year after the abolition of serfdom, and he's been working, teaching peasant children. Uh, that's been his huge passion. And suddenly the Tsar's secret police raid his estate, and he's mortally offended. And he just, in his mercurial way, like the way he'd gone off to join... His brother in the Caucasus, he just just drops his schools and decides he's going to get married and meets this young woman who is the daughter of a physician in the Kremlin and within a week he's proposed and they they get married shortly thereafter and for anyone who wants to sort of get a sense of how this evolved. Um, You can do no better than to read The Middle of Anna Karenina where Levin gets married to Kitty because so much of Tolstoy's fiction is inspired. He's drawing from his own resources.
0: Kitty is, is, is his wife.
3: In many respects, she is, yeah. And so... Yes, yeah, she was she was half Tolstoy's age. And of course she'd never lived in the countryside. And she was chosen by Tolstoy over her elder sister. And she is just very compliant, really. And she, you know, Tolstoy says, Would you like to go abroad for your honeymoon? And she said, No, no, I'd like to get stuck into, you know, country life. So they, they they head off straight after the wedding for Yasna palyana
0: which he's bought back I thought he'd sold it off
3: well he never uh, lost the, the property but he lost the main house and it was dismantled brick by brick and rebuilt about 20 kilometers down the road and he settles instead in the two guest wings which were either side of this main. <laughs> house oh, um, <laughs> And you know he would he would point to a sort of clump of trees near them and say that's where I was born because he was born in that manorial <laughs> house which no longer stood and of course that guest wing was expanded over the years because they went on to have many children. So, yeah, Tolstoy brings his wife uh, um, back to his country estate and it was incredibly spartan.
0: Yes, it's not fancy in the pictures. It's quite a sort of flaky, run-down-looking provincial manor house.
3: Not not just that, you know. He didn't believe in having sort of nice linen. And this poor (laughs) girl... No, he was,
2: yeah, I mean, a little bit like Gandhi, actually, with his own wife, that he suddenly sort of decides unilaterally, we're going to sleep on hard surfaces, we're going to have rough clothes to wear we're not going to have nice things you know it's does she have much choice in the matter and do we know what she thinks about all of this
3: well not not much at that stage and you know there is this I- incredibly strong ascetic streak in Tolstoy you know he'd started his franklin diary you know saying i'm going to learn five languages i'm going to learn the piano i'm going to you know not eat this i'm not going to drink and of course he was unable to keep up any of his good intentions but so the, nevertheless they you know he he had this eccentric way of living you know he, he didn't really need very much in the way of of fine accoutrements. I mean, you like books, but um, Sonia really did soften life there and of course she started having children and it became a proper family home
2: lots of children i mean how many children in
3: the end well there were 13 um i mean there were many more pregnancies than that actually uh there were a couple of still uh a lot of a lot of tragedy and so she took over the household and she she introduced many many nice comfortable aspects to to living scatter cushions <laughs> that kind of thing <laughs> that soft kind of thing yes yeah, soft furnishings yes and and uh, made made sure that the family uh, ate well, but but nevertheless, nevertheless, she was half his age, and he was like a father figure, and he was basically the one who made all the decisions.
0: The final years of Tolstoy's life, when he's by now falling out with his wife and arguing with her every day, is coming towards the period of 1905 and and the great uprisings and and, and challenges to the Tsar. Is Tolstoy part of that? Does do his writings? reflect what's happening? Or do they actually move Russia towards uh, a more anti-Tsarist, critical of, uh, of autocracy frame of mind?
3: He's very much right at the centre of it. And that begins right at the end of Anna Karenina in the eighteen late 1870s. He has a big spiritual crisis and comes out of it very much changed. He starts attacking the Russian Orthodox Church for supporting the government in prosecuting war and starts propounding this philosophy of nonviolence. He translates the Gospels and he will keep up this stream of, of diatribes against the Russian government, against autocracy. Um, and you know, he'd begun to be critical of the Russian autocracy, you know, even back in Kazan when he was a student. He keeps it up all the way through the revolutionary disturbances of 1905, all the way up until his death in 1910. And he is a very influential figure because. The the, the the Russian government is morally bankrupt, and he is the one speaking the truth. And the more that they try and shut him down, the more the Russians want to, to believe him.
0: And he's been widely read. I mean, today we all look at him as you know, arguably the greatest novelist that ever existed. Is he recognised as that during his own lifetime?
3: Well, he's more famous as a kind of um, philosopher and thinker than he is as a novelist at, at that point. And it's striking that the first English translations of his novels Appear in the middle of the 1880s, that's in, in England, at the same time as the first translations of his fiction. So Tolstoy was far more influential uh, as, as a sort of thinker, someone who, yeah, by that stage had become vegetarian, he'd given up all his property, he'd um, given up his title.
0: Sonia was not at all happy with any of this, was she? No, so, so Sonia's <laughs>
2: deeply unhappy, and their marriage, I mean, I you know, not, 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 not to trivialize this, but, it, you know, it is it is a miserable. Marriage by the end, you know, she and she's now found a voice, I guess. So, whereas, you know, she was moldable little Sonia, she's not having this anymore. And the thing that really, really upsets her is that she is sharing him with his acolytes. He's got this sort of band of disciples who seem to, you know, whatever small solace she might have had of of his attention. She doesn't even have that anymore. Just speak a little bit to, to that situation and what, where it leads to, the, the very famous station ending.
3: Well it, well, it was it was very difficult for her. Uh, she, she spent 20 years bringing up children in the countryside and Tolstoy could go to Moscow whenever he wanted to see his editors or to do research for War and Peace. And she was stuck at home. And by the end of it, she was desperate to have a bit of life. And in the end, in 1880, Tolstoy sort of gives in, he compromises and the elder children need to go to school and university, and they buy a house in in Moscow. It's kind of sort of, you know, compromise with her. And she's able to have a bit of a social life, finally. And it's nice for the elder daughters as well. But of course, that means that Tolstoy starts encountering urban poverty. And that's what sets him off on this quest to be a campaigner, a social campaigner. But meanwhile, that means he's no longer there as a father, and he's still having children. Even in 1888, and he's writing this, that notorious uh, novella, the Kreutzer Sonata, which preaches chastity at the same time as that he's have, still having children. And for, Tolst- for Tolstoy's wife, of course, it's very difficult because she's still got to be there as a mother bringing up the children. So she still needs to pay the bills. And if it's all very well for Tolstoy to give up, you know, earning money from his writing, but she's got to somehow feed the children.
0: Take us to the railway station.
3: So I want to take you further on. So that's that's the situation which really goes on all the way up until 1910. And it gets so acrimonious in the end that Tolstoy vows to leave. So his greatest acolyte is uh, very, very... Uh, imperious aristocrat called um, Vladimir Chetkov, and he's been exiled to England in 1897. Uh, Lenin got exiled to Siberia, but because Chetkov was an aristocrat, he got to England, and he he sort of managed the whole sort of Tolstoy enterprise, and then comes back in 1908 and basically moves into Yasna Palyana. Of course, Sonia finds it very, very hard. She's been married to Tolstoy for getting on for 50 years, and suddenly she's been supplanted in, in you know, in her husband's affections by this by this man whose um, whole existence runs contrary to everything she stands for. And so he finally um, manages to to run away at night um, and gets on a train hoping to, well, he says, you know, to live in, in great solitude. But uh, he's such a contradictory figure. But of course, he falls ill. He goes to see his sister, uh, who's become a nun by this stage uh, she's the last member of the family he sees and uh, at the little little station of a he falls ill and he is cared for
0: by his followers in the in the ticket office
3: in the station master's cottage yes
0: yeah that's and that's where that's where he dies with Sonia outside trying to look through the the ticket window. Yeah,
2: she's there as well. She's trying to sort of get in. She's trying to get at him. But also, a, a lot of press is there as well, which is sort of makes the whole. Is, isn't that right? And a, it makes the whole thing just. You know, an awkward, ignominious, as far from peaceful passing as you could hope to have.
3: Because he's a worldwide celebrity at this stage. He's been so successful at disseminating his writings around the world and film has arrived. So there are film crews
2: there. Yeah, crazy.
3: Yes. And the Russian government is trying desperately to sort of hush everything up because he's such an inflammatory figure. He's so powerful. He's been excommunicated by this stage. And that's only really uh, enhanced his moral authority in the Russian population. So he dies there and they, they do their best to stop anyone going to his funeral. So he's buried in Jasnapagliano in his ancestral home. And it's the first civil burial, of course, because he's been excommunicated. And it doesn't stop his great power amongst the Russian populace. And during World War One. There are thousands and thousands of Russian soldiers who just basically abandon the front because they are inspired by Tolstoy's ideas. And uh, if it hadn't been for the Bolshevik coup, I, I'm sure probably he would have been more influential in the in the in the following years.
2: Where where does he stand in Russia today?
3: Well, that's a really good question because when I published my biography in 2010 I went to a stopover um, I was really curious to see how this anniversary the um, the hundred years since his death were being treated in the media and it was a big event around the world you know there, were, there was that, that feature film that, that came out there were all kinds of new books and, and programs and articles in the press but in Russia there was absolute silence and for the very good reason because Tolstoy is still a threat Uh, he's someone who is remembered for War and Peace and he's remembered for Anna Karenina and the Sebastopol sketches, the patriotic ones. And those are the ones that were really hammered down the um, throats of of the Russian population in in huge, huge print runs while his spiritual writings were, were basically censored. And so the idea of this man who was preaching against the government back in, in his lifetime, who was a vegetarian, who was against violence. It's someone that the the, the Russians don't, don't really want to know. Uh, and apparently, the, the anniversary of his birth is going to be celebrated in 2028. But it remains to be seen how they will go about it.
0: Yes, it's difficult to imagine Putin sort of enjoying the whole Tolstoyan ideal of sort of vegetarian... Well,
2: unless he does Also, yeah, just non-violence and, you know, pacifism. I don't know if, if if it's anything. It'd be really interesting to see and we will watch. It's been an absolute delight to speak to you. Oh, Thank you pleasure. so much. The time has just rocked past and there were so many things I wanted to ask you about beekeeping being one of them because, I mean, you know, as a translator, And also a historian, I love your sort of, you know, traveling between those two worlds and suddenly revisiting your translation after knowing that he himself was a beekeeper, and going back and thinking, actually, I could have translated that a lot better. But that's a conversation for another time, because I would love to get you back
0: next time you come to India, Rosamond. You're welcome to come and see my bees in Delhi. We've got three hives. Oh, how
2: fantastic! <laughs> I have no bees, but I would love to hang out. Anyway, look, that is it from this week's Empire. Uh, we're going to be recording a very special Q and A episode this week on, on every Empire series so far. So if you do have any questions at all, tweet them to at EmpirePod UK. That's at EmpirePod UK, or of course you can email them to us at EmpirePoduk at gmail Or
0: tweet them to us at our our I said Twitter that. address. You've you said you are, listen, you are he? so comprehensive. Just listen. listen. Story of my life. I should um, never tell you. What. Anyway, on, on that high,
2: <laughs> goodbye from me, Anita
0: Arden. And goodbye from me, William Darum.